Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, it's Sean. I wanted to let you know that today's episode is about death and themes closely related to suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline can be reached by dialing 988. I cannot change the fact that I am dying, but I am living my final days to the fullest, spending time with family, friends, and in the great outdoors. And I am preparing to experience the best possible death. Brittany Menard, on New Year's Day 2014, at the age of 29, was diagnosed with aggressive brain cancer. Despite multiple surgeries, her cancer progressed to stage four quickly. In April, her doctors told her she had six months to live. And at that point, Brittany moved from her home in California to Oregon because it is one of only five states that do authorize the patient a right to a choice with death with dignity. I am heartbroken that I had to leave behind my home, my community, and my friends in California. But I am dying, and I refuse to lose my dignity. I refuse to subject myself and my family to purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering at the hands of an incurable disease. She's speaking here from her living room but it's being recorded as a message for lawmakers in California. I want to leave this earth in my home, in the arms of my husband and my parents. Knowing that I can leave this life with dignity allows me to focus on living. It has provided me enormous peace of mind. 18 days after making this recording, on November 1st, 2014, Brittany took the lethal drugs she'd been prescribed and died. Her death got national media attention, and her call to expand the availability of this treatment was heard. Right now, 10 states plus D.C. have passed death with dignity laws. That's double what it was in 2014, and the practice is only becoming more and more accepted. It's one of those issues where the specifics matter a lot. If physician-assisted death, as it's known, is made available for terminally ill people like Brittany, should we also extend this right to people with non-terminal illnesses? 
And that's just scratching the surface. Apart from all the policy questions, what does it mean to die with dignity? And who gets to decide? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Katie Englehart. She's the author of the book, The Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die. Katie is a veteran journalist and now a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. And her book is an incredible feat of reporting. She spent a long time with dozens of people in the world of physician-assisted death, doctors, activists, researchers, and of course, patients themselves. And in getting so close to so many real people, She allows us to see this not as just some abstract thought experiment, but as the difficult, emotionally charged issue it is. Even after spending years reporting on this, Katie says she hasn't fully resolved all the questions in her own mind. And she says that's significant. It's a testament to how difficult this really is. But when she started reporting years ago, what was her general opinion about right-to-die laws? think I had particularly strong views. I did, at some shallow level, support right-to-die legislation. I did think that a very sick person at the end of his life should have the option to speed things along with the doctor's help, should have the option to die painlessly, if possible. But it wasn't a strong feeling. And as I did more research, that kind of loose support, I guess, changed. You know, I still feel roughly the same way. If we look at American right to die laws, I'm generally supportive. But there are other places where the laws are different, where different kinds of patients are eligible or not eligible. And some of those laws cause me some anxiety. We'll definitely get into that. This is a very intimate book. You formed relationships with people who wanted to end their lives, who were trying to end their lives. Mm-hmm. When people explained to you why they wanted to die, what were the reasons that you heard? Was it mostly about ending the suffering, or was it more this idea of wanting to die with dignity, which is a word that appears a lot in your book? Well, I knew that to write this book, I needed to spend a lot of time with people. I knew that I, I needed to spend months and, and in some cases years following my subjects. And that's in part because I didn't find existing reporting on the right to die or assisted death to be particularly helpful in terms of my understanding of the legal and moral issues. What I mean by that is there are a lot of newspapers that report on assisted dying legislation, and articles tend to follow a kind of standard format. We're introduced to a subject, a case study. That person has often terminal cancer and is within a few months of death, that person will explain to the reporter that she wants to die because she is sick. A leads to B, illness leads to desire to die, and she should have the right to end her life quickly. The people who appear in these articles are understandable, they're relatable, they're kind of emotionally legible, but I found things to be a lot more complicated. It wasn't 
always the case that someone wanted to die solely because of her illness. Other factors came into play, fear, lack of access to healthcare, money, love, consideration for other people in one situation. I think a kind of desire to be famous on Facebook. I mean, lives are messy and a decision to die or a decision to die sooner than one needs to die is going to be messy too. The people in my book wanted to die for different reasons. I followed someone who wanted to die because she was chronically ill. She had multiple sclerosis. Another woman had dementia. One woman was quite old and was experiencing kind of a constellation of symptoms, I guess, that resulted from her age. Another young man was dealing with mental illness, a lot of psychiatric conditions that made him want to die. But they did share certain values. They did share certain aspirations. And and yet one of them was to die with dignity. The phrase death with dignity, it's become sort of a euphemism for assisted dying. And the word dignity is thrown around a lot to the point that it's become kind of meaningless. Each side tries to have a monopoly on the word dignity. But people told me over and over that they wanted to die with dignity. I mean, I think they meant different things by that. Yeah. There's a line in the book that really jumped out to me. You wrote, people find dignity in authenticity. It mattered to the people I met that they lived as themselves, as they defined themselves, until the very final moment, even if that meant sacrificing days or weeks or years of life. That's a hell of a way to put it. And I think most people can understand that sentiment. I mean, for me, it's about lucidity and courage in the face of our own annihilation. It's about living on our own terms and deciding what kind of life is worth living and what kind of life isn't. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I guess I'm not sure what dignity means if it isn't something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense that you're not sure what dignity means. I think it's sort of a fuzzy concept to say the least. Now, I think a lot of people do find dignity in what we could call authenticity or consistency. People want to live as themselves to the end in a way they want to write their own endings as much as possible, which is why in the book I describe assisted dying as a kind of authorial act. I mean, it's letting people script out the final days of their lives. But, you know, other people have different ideas of dignity. For some people, Dignity is a religious concept. For other people, dignity is not about escaping pain or illness, but being brave in the face of pain. Dignity is sort of earned through endurance. Yeah, but I also love that you say candidly that you went into this maybe expecting transcendent wisdom from some of these people who were approaching death. And the reality is that sometimes dignity for people just means not shitting their pants. (laughs) Exactly. A lot of people I met equated dignity rather precisely with sphincter control. Their lives, in other words, would be dignified until they shit their pants, until they had to have someone else wipe their ass. I mean, it was that straightforward and it feels crude, but while it can be hard for people to define dignity, people know what feels undignified to them. And a lot of people who look for assisted death are looking to escape indignity For a lot of people, that's some sort of state of dependence that they don't feel comfortable with or some state of intimacy that they don't want, you know, intimacy with professional caregivers, say. I wonder if there's a simple way 
for you to just walk us through how a patient in a place like Oregon or California or somewhere like that in the States, what the process is like for someone who wants to end their life. Yeah. Why don't I tell you about a man named Bradshaw who I met in California. He was in his 80s, white. He had insurance. He was on Medicare. He had some education and he had terminal cancer. In that way, he was very much a typical assisted dying patient. Demographically, those patients skew white, they skew educated, insured. So Bradshaw knew that he was going to die and his doctors agreed that he was not only terminally ill, but that he had six months or less to live. And that's a requirement of the law in all the American states where it's legal that someone's death be predicted to occur within six months. Mm, okay. Now, prognostication is a kind of fuzzy science. Doctors aren't always so good at predicting when exactly their patients die, but the law requires that two doctors roughly agree. In Bradshaw's case, his death was quite imminent. His doctor told me after probably a couple weeks away from a natural death due to prostate cancer. So Bradshaw was required to sign legal forms through the state of California. He was required to find a doctor to perform this service. He had to wait a mandatory, I think it was two-week waiting period. It's slightly different in different states. After the waiting period was over, he was delivered a kind of cocktail of cardiac and respiratory medications. And he was required, as California law demands, to ingest the medication himself. So in this case, it meant he was required to drink it. He drank one solution and half an hour later, he drank a second. And his children were with him when he died. I was with him when he died. It's not the most onerous process, but certainly it requires paperwork and a waiting period. We can debate the ethics of the waiting period. And that's essentially what this law is demanding. How do patients who undergo assisted death actually die? I mean, you mentioned they had to drink something. Is it pills? Mm -hmm. Is it an injection? Uh, do they get to choose? So in the United States, state laws require that a patient self-ingest lethal medication. The amount of time it takes, that varies. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. With older drug cocktails, it could take days in some situations. Occasionally, a patient will vomit up the medication or have some sort of interaction with other medication that slows things down. But what's really important is the patient self-ingests. The idea is that if a person is physically forced to drink a lethal poison, we can be pretty sure that the act is autonomous and not coerced. In almost every other place where this is legal, euthanasia is also legal. So a doctor can inject a patient with a lethal drug, and that patient will die quickly. In places like Canada, patients are given the choice. Do you want to self-ingest or do you want a doctor to give you a shot? And it's something like 99.9% .9 of patients choose for their physicians to do this. I think a lot of people just prefer to not have it in their own hands at the very end. I get it. Is it a common thing or even fairly common that people start down this road and then end up withdrawing their consent at some point during the process, you know, changing their mind that maybe maybe this isn't what they want to do after all. Does that happen very much or is it rare? Yes, it's fairly common. I've heard 
that about a third of cases don't go through to completion. Now, that could be for different reasons. Yeah. It could be because the person dies during the waiting period. That's not uncommon. It could be because a person loses mental capacity during the waiting period. Mm. It's quite common at the end of life for a patient to have some delirium or to be on sedatives that affect cognition. And so a person might lose the ability to make an informed decision. And in some cases, people just decide that they don't need to die, that actually their doctors are managing their pain okay and that they're doing fine. I spent some time with a palliative care doctor in California, and he told me about this patient who he approved for assisted death. She met all the criteria. And she was living in an inpatient hospice house in California. And and every day she'd ask the doctor, doctor, is today the day? And he would say, is today good enough? So he was asking, is today a good enough day that you can live one more day? And every day she said that it was. Hmm. And she carried on that way and ultimately died what we would call a natural death. A lot of doctors tell me that approval, that being approved for an assisted death is itself a kind of palliative treatment. People feel better when they know they have an out, even if they choose not to use it. As you just alluded to, the assisted death laws vary a ton from country to country. Where you are in Canada, the laws are a lot more permissive than in the U.S. Same goes for places like Belgium and the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Can you explain some of the important differences here? The United States laws are very strict by global standards. Someone has to be terminally ill. They have to be mentally competent. They have to be within six months of a natural death. In other places like Canada, it's just very different. So, for instance, in Canada, initially when the law passed, a person's death had to be reasonably foreseeable, but that's actually been changed. So there's no requirement that a person's death be imminent. Someone could be living with a disease like multiple sclerosis that could play out over years or even decades. In Canada, a person is not required to be terminally ill, but is required to have a serious medical condition and to be in a state of decline. What's interesting about the Canadian law is that one of the requirements is that a patient be suffering unbearably. Hmm. And it's interesting because it is left to the patient to decide what is unbearable, which really makes sense because only a, an individual can decide what she can bear. That's a good place to pivot into some of these arguments for and against. Sure. You know, I just have to say, and this is going to be abundantly clear to anyone listening, that I don't know exactly where I land on a lot of this. Mm -hmm. This is an emotionally resonant issue. I have strong feelings, but then I also have contradictory feelings, and maybe I just have to live with those contradictions, you know? Mm -hmm. And what you're really talking about now is this question of autonomy and what it means to be, in your words, a sovereign self. Now, my view has always been that if we have anything like a truly incontestable right to anything, it's the right to our own life and body. And that's a very general statement, but is that more or less your view? Sure. We have a right to life. Now, proponents of assisted dying legislation would say that that right has been corrupted, that a right to life has become an enforceable duty to live. Mm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. 
On the other hand, of course, you have people who say that any right to die, a legal right to die, will become inevitably, due to the exigencies of the U.S. healthcare system, a duty to die. I understand that fear too. I probably share a lot of your uncertainty. You know, this was an unusual book for me to write in that I spent five years on my reporting and ended up in a lot of ways less certain than when I started. Things get a lot murkier as you move from these statements about abstract principles like freedom or whatever down to the concrete cases. And it's a credit to your book that the reader is constantly confronted with the uncertainty of all this. And, you know, a lot of people cite this fear of the loss of autonomy as a reason for wanting to die. People feel like there's a loss of dignity that comes with the loss of bodily autonomy, whether it's the loss of speech or memory or bowels, and they don't want to live like that. And I certainly get that. But what about forms of suffering that are harder to measure, but no less real, like psychological pain or emotional torment or what we might call existential suffering? Should we treat that as less worthy of consideration since at least I guess, in principle, we seem to have more control over it and that it's coming from our our minds. But it's just really hard to know what to do with that. Yeah. And I can kind of pick up on your hesitancy there because you're saying, well, maybe there's more control over it. But of course, sometimes there's not. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know that that's actually true. Yeah. Well, several countries allow for people who are mentally ill but physically well to have an assisted death. And that's very tricky. So Canada will start allowing this next year. It's already allowed in Belgium, where I spent some time reporting. And certainly, psychiatrists who support this practice in Belgium will say, mental suffering can be as bad as physical suffering. Mental suffering can cause physical suffering. Psychiatric conditions are real. And there's no reason for us to privilege physical pain over mental pain. I think it's not that straightforward, of course. Opponents in Belgium will say, by helping a person who is mentally ill to die, doctors are actually collaborating in a suicide. They are fulfilling the suicidal ideation of a patient in a way they're validating it. You're right. You are incurable. Maybe death is the right answer for you. So it's a complicated issue, and and I certainly struggled with it. Of everything I wrote in the book, this was the most challenging. I spent some time in Belgium with a couple of women in their 30s who were approved to die on the grounds of mental suffering because they were chronically depressed. So they were women my age who felt like there was no hope for them because of their mental anguish. And I found them to challenge me quite a lot. When we come back after a short break, if we take the idea of freedom seriously, how can we tell anyone who wants to end their life that their reasons just aren't good enough? Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If we're going to take this idea of freedom seriously, then who are we to tell an adult who decides they don't want to live anymore that their reasons aren't sufficient? It's just so damn hard to know where to draw the lines or if the lines are even drawable. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned earlier the story of this guy who wanted to get famous on Facebook. I think his name was Adam Meyer Clayton. And this is a guy who suffered from psychosomatic pain due to mental illness. He didn't get the help he needed when he needed it, and he wanted to die. But you got closer and closer to him in this story, and the picture got messier. And eventually, you just had to walk away. Adam, I think, wanted to be a kind of poster child for the movement. He was fighting for people with mental illness to qualify for assisted dying in Canada. He wasn't a perfect poster child in part because of how young he was. He was in his mid-20s. Wow. And in part because there were treatments that he hadn't tried that may have helped him. Now, I'm kind of hesitating here because I don't know that we should feel comfortable requiring that people do everything or try everything before they qualify for an assisted death. Yeah. You know, a person with cancer has the right to say, I've tried chemotherapy twice. I'm not trying it again and suffering. I'd rather go home and die in peace, or I'd rather have an assisted death. We don't demand that they try something that has a small chance of working. So I'm sympathetic to people who argue we can't demand that someone with a mental illness subject themselves to every pill and form of therapy possible before they can make a choice. But as you say, it's hard to draw the line. And there are people who argue that assisted death actually shouldn't be a medical choice. It shouldn't exist in the domain of medicine. They would argue that suffering is suffering. It doesn't matter what the cause is. So we could say, let's look at financial suffering. What if someone has lived decades in poverty and is suffering unbearably because of it and wants to die? 
my heart, your heart probably says, no, absolutely not. We can never allow that situation. And to be clear, I would never support a law that allowed for doctors to end the lives of people in poverty. I would never support that. But it's interesting to play out, right? Why would we oppose such a person? Well, one reason is that poverty is kind of man-made. Cancer's bad biological luck. Maybe, but at the level of the suffering person, that person is just suffering. We could argue that poverty is curable. A person could have a change in situation. Maybe, but poverty is also sticky. I mean, it can be chronic across generations. And so our opposition then starts to falter a little bit, right? At some level, we could argue that the suffering associated with poverty is just as bad as the suffering associated with cancer and should be treated the same way. And when I'm thinking of that suffering person, when I'm thinking about that person in poverty who wants to die, and I'm saying, no, absolutely not. Of course, we can't have a doctor help you die. What am I saying? I'm saying, you have to stay. You have to go on because of, I don't know, moral principle? Yeah, and... Poverty complicates this picture in another related way. There's a doctor you quote in the book, he's from Belgium, Mm -hmm. who is a supporter of physician-assisted death. But he very much recoiled at the idea of assisted death in America, where there isn't basic universal health care. Because without universal access to mental health or palliative care, treatment for advanced illness, Death can become a cheaper alternative to the enormous cost of healthcare, and that can create really horrid incentives in the system. Mm. Yeah, the first doctor you're talking about is Wim Distelmans, and he was in Belgium. And he is, I mean, he's like famous in the country for supporting assisted death and for being involved in all sorts of assisted death cases. But when I asked him about the right to die in the United States, yeah, he physically recoiled from me. And he said, absolutely, they should not have legal physician-assisted death in the United States. The healthcare system is so dysfunctional that it can't support something as serious as assisted death. In other countries where the right to die is legal, Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands, there's a public healthcare system. So you know at the least that someone has healthcare when they're making the request to die, that they have the option of care. And that's not true in the United States. And there are certainly doctors who say we should focus on providing healthcare before we focus on facilitating death. And sure, I think there are liberal supporters of the right to die in theory who oppose it on practical grounds in the United States. They think the laws will inherently be debased by financial utilitarianism. And so at some point, they imagine a right to die becomes a duty to die cheaply for the sake of the system, for the sake of your children, or just because clinging on to life at the end when your life is expensive comes to be seen as a kind of vanity. Again, though, we can flip to the other side and say, so what does that mean? There should be no autonomy for all Americans until the system conditions are perfect. (laughs) I don't know. It is, I think, much easier, at least easier for me, to say that, yeah, sure, an 85-year-old with stage four cancer clearly has the right to end his life if he wants to. Mm -hmm. But what about a 37-year-old person with 
bipolar or clinical depression who makes a perfectly coherent case for wanting to die, but is battling real demons and hasn't got the care they need. Are we okay with that? I don't think I am, to be honest. And I know that conflicts with what I've already said about the importance of autonomy, but (laughs) here I am, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it is worth saying that in the United States, the laws have remained very tight. So the first death with dignity law was passed in Oregon in the 90s. Other states that have legalized assisted death have basically, with some minor tweaks, copied the Oregon law. And the eligibility criteria hasn't expanded. That hasn't been true in other countries. In countries like Canada, the law has expanded to include new categories of patients. And that's been true in Europe too. So in the Netherlands, a person can apply for an assisted death for a future self, (laughs) by which I mean someone who's diagnosed with dementia could apply for assisted death with the understanding that that would take place further down the line when the dementia is worse. In Belgium, for instance, a mature minor could qualify. And what does that mean? What's a mature minor? A child. A child who has sufficient understanding of his or her situation. So a teenager. Maybe a teenager could be younger, depends on the kid. That's legal in Belgium. In Canada, the government debated whether or not to extend the right to die to mature minors. That seemed crazy to me. It didn't happen in Canada, but in Belgium, very, very rarely, someone under 18 with the consent of parents can choose assisted death. That makes me really, really uncomfortable. It's, yeah, I I mean, we're talking about dying children, so I'm uncomfortable too, but, you know, play it out. Why 18 instead of a mature 17-year-old? Yeah. An exercise that was useful to me is, you know, I can think about opposition to something or discomfort to something on moral grounds, but what would I do if I was faced with a patient? I mean, what would I do looking in the eyes of a 16-year-old who's suffering, who's dying, and just wants out? Yeah. Could I tell that person, no, because... I feel uncomfortable because you're below 18. And if I can't, then maybe my theoretical discomfort isn't very strong or shouldn't be guiding my more firm, well-thought-out beliefs. I mean, this is hard even in the abstract. (laughs) But when you put it like that, when I try to imagine myself in that position as a physician, I, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. The current Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch, before becoming a part of the Supreme Court, was a PhD student, and he wrote his PhD on the right to die. Spoiler alert, he's opposed. But he makes the case that even just the existence of a law could be ethically corrosive. It could kind of pull people in. People would feel pressure because of the existence of the law. This is an argument that's borrowed sometimes by disability rights organizations. And I understand it. I can understand the fear that just having a law in the books is going to create a kind of permissive environment and maybe end up hurting people who are vulnerable. Now, assisted dying laws in the United States do not apply to people who have disabilities but aren't terminally ill. But but still, I understand the fear. I'm glad you brought up Gorsuch because... You're right. Like, there's a version of that argument that I do think is 
valid and worth engagement. But there's also a bad faith way of making that kind of slippery slope argument. And I think he makes it in that his book was called The Future of Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia. I guess that was his, his dissertation. And the argument he makes there is that if we put a law like this on the book, it's going to, in his words, hurdle us toward cheap death and forced killings. And he mm-hmm. he brings up the excesses and the, the racist eugenics of 19th century right-to-die advocates. Mm-hmm. And that kind of fear-mongering, I think, is offensive and unserious. And I would reject the implication that we haven't matured at all as a society or that we can't manage this without careening into Nazism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, helpful to acknowledge the history of the right to die movement. A lot of the people who initially supported voluntary euthanasia, as they called it, also supported involuntary euthanasia for sterilization for certain parts of society. But you're right, I'm not really convinced by opposition arguments that bring us back to Nazism or to eugenics. I'm more convinced by arguments that look at the financial nature of the U.S. healthcare system. But I also found Gorsuch to be disingenuous in another way. I mean, we know that he is very much guided by religion, faith in his work. I think in the book, he was really careful to not say God, to not make it seem like a religious argument, but it was inherently religious. I mean, what he couldn't get away from is the fact that he thinks life is sacred and needs to be protected just by virtue of this inherent sanctity. And, you know, a humanist can feel the same way. I don't think it always holds up. I can sometimes find myself more likely to agree with an idea like life is sacred if you think it is. (laughs) And if you don't, your life's probably not sacred. Yeah, I think that's fair. The religious objection, I think, is worth hearing. And, you know, the Vatican had signed a joint declaration, I don't remember when exactly, against, you know, quote, the dignity of the dying patient, and that was the grounds for the opposition. And Mm -hmm. I want to take that seriously because I know it it is serious, and I don't want to wave that kind of concern away. Mm. But again, part of me recoils, and, you know, you quote a doctor in the book who says that no one has a monopoly on what it means to die a good death or what it means to die with dignity. And that seems right to me. Mm -hmm. Only a free individual person can decide what a dignified death looks like for them. Who am I? Who are you? Who is some priest somewhere to tell someone who prefers death to dementia or whatever else? Mm -hmm that they're wrong. Again, I'm not totally comfortable with it, but I have a hard time accepting that the state or anyone else can make that kind of choice Mm -hmm. for someone else. Interestingly, on the religious point, I mean, Gallup did a poll a few years ago, I think it was in 2017 or 18, and they found that Americans broadly support, I mean, something like 70% of Americans support the idea that a doctor should be able to painlessly end a patient's life if that patient wants it. I mean, Republicans thought that, majority of self-described conservatives thought that. The only demographic group that didn't was weekly churchgoers. Mm. Monthly churchgoers still supported assisted dying in theory, occasional churchgoers. The idea of who can define a good death. So the person in my book who made that statement that nobody has a monopoly over good death was a doctor, 
Dr. Lonnie Shavelson. And actually, he made that statement in the context of what he sees as a medical monopoly over this. So right now in California or in Oregon or New Jersey, a doctor has to evaluate a patient who wants an assisted death. A doctor has to approve the patient. A doctor has to prescribe the drugs. Some doctors are there at the bedside when a patient dies. And there are some people who think that actually this should be taken out of the domain of medicine and given to, I don't know, social workers or therapists or just some other profession. And again, that's difficult because right now someone is only eligible if he or she meets certain medical requirements. But I think the argument has more validity when we look at why people in the United States choose assisted death. So there's some data from Oregon, for example, and it it looks at why patients choose assisted dying. And what's interesting is it's not really about pain. I assume that most people would want to die because they were in pain. Actually, it wasn't the case at all. People were choosing to die for more existential reasons because they wanted to preserve autonomy, because they wanted to preserve dignity, because they wanted to avoid the loss of activities that brought them joy, for instance. So if people are already choosing to die for existential reasons more than purely physical reasons, you know, why do we have to have doctors controlling everything? I mean, I'm not even sure where I fall on this, but I think it's an interesting question. Could we have even doctors approve people, but ultimately have some kind of, I don't know, cadre of death doulas guide people through the final stage? You don't learn in medical school what makes a life worth living. So why are doctors in charge of the domain of death more than they have to be? What's the difference between physician-assisted death and suicide? That's coming up after one last short break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This is one of the objections to physician-assisted death is basically just a rejection of suicide as such. Mm. Or it flows from a view that the choice to take your life is always and everywhere 
wrong. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the reason why activists on the other side do not want to use the word suicide, right? That has been a very deliberate decision to disentangle suicide and all the baggage that that word contains from this idea of physician-assisted death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found language challenging in this. I understand why proponents of assisted dying legislation don't want to use the word suicide and why patients don't necessarily feel like they are committing suicide and choosing an assisted death. But on the other hand, I find alternative vocabulary like medical aid and dying a little clunky. Yeah, I think most of the people I spoke to see what they are doing when they choose assisted death as fundamentally different from suicide, suicide, or what we could call despair suicide. So a suicide driven by mental illness or anguish or some kind of instability. Some people talk about rational suicide. So a kind of suicide that they see as driven not by despair, but by mathematics, by a cost-benefit analysis. And particularly, I see that used by people arguing that assisted dying legislation should be expanded to very old people for people who may not have a singular terminal condition like cancer, but who are suffering Hmm. because of the ravages of aging. Yeah. And the question of rationality is, I think, connected to questions about agency Mm -hmm. and who has it and who does it. So there is very often you see assisted death laws placed alongside other seemingly related and also very thorny moral issues like abortion, which obviously involves bodily autonomy and decisions about life or potential life, Mm -hmm. or euthanasia for patients in persistent vegetative states. There's been a few very high-profile cases of that, certainly in this country. And part of the complexity in these cases is due to the fact we are making decisions for people who either lack agency or are too young to have ever developed agency. And that's what makes them very intractable moral dilemmas. But would you say that, at least in the case of assisted death, it's an easier problem to confront than those because we're talking about adults that are rational and sober and able to make decisions for themselves? Yeah, I don't think the crossover with abortion is particularly convincing. I mean, there's this argument I find it very disingenuous. It goes something like this. People who support abortion want to roll back personhood at the beginning of life. And similarly, right-to-die proponents want to roll back personhood at the end of life. They want to say that very old and very sick people aren't people. I don't think that's convincing at all. I mean, people who qualify for assisted dying must, by law, know what they want, know what they're asking for, be making an autonomous choice. It is true that some of the groups that worked very successfully to overturn Roe v. Wade are also interested in overturning assisted dying legislation. But again, I don't think it's straightforward. You know, I think what people don't realize too is that doctors are already involved in speeding along or facilitating the deaths of their patients in different ways. Americans have, for instance, the constitutional right to reject treatment. So for instance, if I had a feeding tube put in me because I couldn't eat and this feeding tube was keeping me alive, I'd have the right to tell the doctor to take out the feeding tube, even if that meant that I would die, that I would starve to death. And people do that. And so a doctor would have to 
collaborate with me in removing that feeding tube and allowing me to starve to death. Already, it's standard practice for doctors to use sedating drugs. If a patient is dying and in pain, some doctors will give a patient enough sedatives to make the patient unconscious, and that unconscious patient will die. On their death certificate, it might say the person dies of cancer, but ultimately the person will die because his doctor gave him sedating drugs and you know he got dehydrated and had kidney failure. So doctors are already involved in this. And there's a way of looking at assisted death as not a radically different proposal, but just another option on the spectrum of end-of-life care. And that's certainly where doctors who do assisted death would like to see it. Yeah, and I, I guess one thing that does remind me of some of the abortion discourse, I will hear people on the other side make arguments that what I'm saying here is trivializing the sanctity of life. And I just have to say that I think it's exactly the opposite. It's because this is so impossibly complicated. It's because there are no easy answers. It's because every situation is unique and people should be left to decide what to do with their lives and their bodies. But if I told you I fully understood the potential social ramifications of allowing this, and if the parameters for this would slowly expand into allowing more and more people to choose to end their lives, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know which slippery slope concerns are real and which ones are overstated. Yeah. I guess I just feel very strongly that people have to be left to make these decisions for themselves. I just don't know any other way to do it. But I still don't know where to draw the lines. You know, people who talk about the sanctity of life, even people who aren't religious can be influenced by Judeo-Christian thinking. And I think there's this sense people have that somehow suffering at the end of life, there's some good in it. Like there's some redemption that can be found in it. There's some salvation that somehow it's part of a natural process. And maybe that's true, but I also don't like the idea that someone has to suffer because someone else thinks it's good for them. And I would hazard a bet that those opponents would find it pretty hard to look in the eyes of someone with terminal cancer and say, hang in there, uh, you could learn something. (laughs) This could be good for you when that person wants to die. And I think you're right. It is hard to know where to draw the line. So if I look at the American laws, again, someone needs to be terminally ill. Someone needs to have six months or left to live. I have the sense that this law is too narrow. So it wouldn't apply to someone who is suffering an unimaginable amount, but maybe has 12 months to live. I think that person should probably qualify just like the person who has six months to live. And then we start walking outwards. What about someone who is chronically ill and really suffering and really wants to die, but could theoretically live years? I met someone like that for my book. Yeah. Then we walk out further. What if someone isn't dying of cancer, but instead has a lot of back pain, plus hearing loss and vision loss, and maybe some intestinal issues? And altogether, all of these things added up cause a lot of suffering. We start to get a little nervous, maybe, but it's worth it for us to push ourselves on this. And again, just because we're uncomfortable with something doesn't mean we could and should create a legal prohibition. Yeah. You know, even people who support abortion, they often have to kind of learn that in some cases, this means supporting a choice they think is bad, supporting a choice they wouldn't make in the interests of preserving choice and the option. Yeah. I think that's true here too. Well, you've already said this, you know, Canada's laws already allow non-terminal patients to choose 
assisted death mm -hmm. in March of 2023, that criteria is going to expand again to include people suffering mental illness as well as physical ailments. This is freaking people out and not just in Canada. It freaks me out a little bit, as I've already said. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have eyes on Canada as a, a kind of test case for this legislation. And, you know, I know between 2016 and 2021, so five years, more than 30,000 Canadians chose assisted death. In terms of the broader death with dignity movement, how much do you think is riding on how things go in Canada next year? I think a lot of people will look to Canada for a number of reasons. First, because as you say, the law has expanded and it's expanded quickly. In a lot of ways, Canada is kind of the nightmare scenario of right-to-die opponents in the U.S. Canada is also an interesting test case because it's a large country. It's a diverse country. In Europe, assisted dying tends to be legal in these small countries like the Netherlands, where there's not a lot of diversity where there's a really extensive social safety net. And so Canada, it's kind of a little messier. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of who chooses this. But I think we can expect a lot of eyes on Canada, specifically because people with mental illness will qualify to die under this law. I don't think that means it's going to be very common. I mean, you still have to have doctors agree to be part of it. But I think it will happen. I don't know how it will play out. I know in Belgium, a lot of doctors or psychiatrists don't want any part of euthanasia for people with mental illness. And as a result, there are a couple doctors who do it and patients seek those doctors out. And those doctors are at least accused of saying yes when other doctors say no. Will that happen in Canada? I don't know. I can't say. It's certainly very uncomfortable. You're in Canada. You're, you're Canadian. I, I don't. I don't understand that culture as well as I understand American culture. But I do think in American culture we have a very unhealthy relationship with our own mortality. I don't think we know how to talk about it. We ignore it. We treat it like some kind of unmentionable phantasm. And I can't help but think our unhealthy relationship with death prevents us from dealing with this in a mature way. And you quote some stats that were pretty startling to me. 70% of Americans report that they generally avoid talking about death. 22% of people 65 and older have never even discussed end-of-life wishes with a healthcare provider. That seems to me a problem. And there's a patient you quote in the book, I think her name was Betty, and she talks about how it's virtually impossible for any human being, no matter how old they are, to imagine their own death. And I don't know, I think imagining your death is the easiest thing in the world. You can just reflect on how hard it was to not be alive before you were born. That's how easy it will be to be dead. It's the dying part that we're afraid of. <laughs> and that's precisely the point of this whole debate, right? It's giving people the freedom to control when possible how they will die. Yeah. I think there's the human condition side of it. It's hard to think about death. I had very early memories of fearing death. And then I think there's a kind of institutionalized death phobia. I mean, until very recently, there was no billing code in the United States for end-of-life conversations. Like a doctor couldn't bill Medicare to have an end-of-life conversation with a patient. Hmm. And so guess what the result was? They just didn't have the conversations. Right. And so it's not surprising that a lot of deaths in the United States, I mean, they're, they're ugly, right? Someone kind of holds on 
sticks her head in the sand, and then there's a disaster, a fall, a broken hip, something like that, that maybe could have been avoided with some thought. You know, I don't like thinking about it. I wrote a book about death and I kept like making notes to myself, you know, remember to ask mom and dad what their plans are, you know, and I just didn't want to, even though I was writing this book, but you know, we can't ignore it. I found that thinking about the right to die, even if it's something I wouldn't choose, helped me to think about how I value my own life mm-hmm. and at what point that value wouldn't exist. I think we need to work with our squeamishness and think about what makes sense in different places. I think I'll end by saying, and I really mean this, that this book, this is a nuanced and deeply humane piece of reporting with all kinds of ethical knots. And I think you navigated them as well as can be done. So kudos. I really appreciate that. And I'm grateful to you for allowing such a messy conversation because... It's not easy to think these things through. The book is The Inevitable, Dispatches from the Right to Die. Katie Englehart, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostovska is our editor. Patrick Boyd and Paul Robert Mouncey engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Look, this was a heavy episode. No one likes talking about death. And it's really hard in this country in particular. That's what Katie and I were talking about at the end there. But I really do feel like this is a quintessential gray area episode because we're just dealing with moral questions that don't admit of simple answers and i think we lean into that in this conversation let us know what you think do you want to hear more episodes like this or is that enough drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com and if you appreciated this episode feel free to share it around leave a review all that stuff helps we appreciate it 